Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. A tribe Called Quest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz, Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim, and you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Ow! Up. It's your boy, Elia Einhorn. Welcome back to the Talk House Podcast. We have a very special show for you in two ways. One, musician and Wilco leader Jeff Tweedy is in conversation with comedian extraordinaire Nick Offerman. And two, this is a very bittersweet episode because our producer Mark and myself have decided to step away from the show to focus on a couple new projects that we are very psyched to tell you about. I want to tell you this, though. The flagship TalkHouse podcast will go on, and it will be in the very capable hands of executive editor Josh Modell. Hello, Elia. Thank you. And TalkHouse Films editor-in-chief, the man, the myth, the legend, Nick Dawson. Thank you, thank you, thank you. To say a quick goodbye before this great episode, I got to bring the man in the shadows, our producer extraordinaire, Mark Yoshizumi, on mic. How's it going, man? It is uh, unsettling to be here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's been an amazing over 300 episodes on the show. I started out as the engineer on the very first episode and I was moved to producer and then took over as host four years ago now. Mark, you were my tech guru. You taught me everything I know about (laughs) recording and thankfully agreed to come on and fix all my (laughs) shitty mixing. (laughs) For better or for worse. But yeah, man, huge thanks both to Josh and Nick for being amazing co-hosts and bookers of the show for so many years. Mm -hmm. I am really looking forward to hearing the shows that you guys are going to bring on. Yeah, man. Amen. You're too kind. (laughs) Thank you, Mark. And huge love to Ian Wheeler, who started the Talk House and continues on as publisher extraordinaire. So we have a producer extraordinaire and a publisher extraordinaire, evidently. <laughs> well, I want to also give a shout out to a doer of all things extraordinaire in Keenan Cush, who is doesn't get credited on every episode of the Talk House podcast, but certainly does a huge amount of behind the scenes work on every episode. So Keenan, it's been an honor and a pleasure working with you. And thank you so much. Thank you to all our guests who have come on over the years. Thank you to all our listeners who have been with us. And like I say, the show is in incredibly capable hands and you're not even going to know we're gone, except there's going to be a lot less loud mouthing at the top of the episodes. (laughs) What's up? (laughs) We just need you to record like 50 or 60 different what's ups so we can insert them into future episodes. But I will be saying chop it up every week. Okay. (laughs) Keep it locked. Listeners, you guys fucking rule. You can follow me on Instagram at Elia Einhorn to keep an eye on the new shows and radio stations that Mark and I are launching. And of course, follow at TalkHouse for this brand new collaboration that we're about to have dropping. It's an amazing new series on TalkHouse that I'm not allowed to say anything about, but I cannot wait to share with you guys. On that note, should we talk about the show at hand, boys? Let's do it. Josh, tell us a little bit about Monsieur Tweedy. I think everyone who listens to the podcast is probably pretty familiar with Jeff Tweedy, the singer-songwriter, cut his teeth in Uncle Tupelo, now, of course, is the leader of Wilco and also the leader of Tweedy and releases solo records and now has written his second book, which is the occasion for this conversation. The book is called How to Write One Song, Loving the Things We Create and How They Love Us Back. Uh, Talkhouse podcast listeners might remember it from last week's show, uh, which featured... (laughs) 
Jeff along with Nora Jones. But this week, we partner him with someone else. Like the Nora Jones of comedy, basically, uh, Nick Offerman, <laughs> who is, uh, you know, I think one of the most distinctive uh, personalities in comedy, in TV, in entertainment generally, you know, best known for playing Ron Swanson on Parks and Rec. Can I just say what I've been wanting to say since we recorded this, Nick? Say it. Ron fucking Swanson, a hero. And for my money, one half of the best damn hashtag relationship goals, uh, marriage in the biz with uh, Megan Mullally. Those guys are amazing. So yeah, it's just a real pleasure to have these two friends in conversation, just uh, chopping it up. Yeah. And as we learned, Offerman's not only married to Megan Mullally, he's also married to Jeff Tweedy. <laughs> Little known fact. You heard it here first. This episode was originally aired as a live stream that was co-hosted by one of our collective favorite venues in the world, The Hideout in Chicago, and the wonderful Seminary Co-op Bookstore located at 5751 South Woodlawn Avenue in Chicago. If you haven't picked up Tweedy's new book yet, Pick it up from Seminary Co-op Bookstore. It's my dear friends at the hideout and my neighborhood bookstore all in one. I love it. And the guys get into quite a bit here. We hear all about demythologizing the artistic process. They give their take on the current political climate in the U.S. They talk about the godlike act of creation. And they talk about in songwriting or any creative endeavor, the importance of using the voice that you were given. We also hear about the parallels between woodworking this is Nick Offerman, and songwriting, and about a very hardworking bumblebee named Billy Bob Bill. Can I just add one of my favorite parts of this conversation is that they're casually talking about their mutual friend, George, who helps them with their writing, who is, of course, George fucking Saunders, the greatest living <laughs> writer. That's just George, our buddy George. Our pal. Keep it locked for this wonderful conversation, which is followed by a Q&A, and then an exclusive solo set by Jeff Tweedy. Should we do it? Let's hear it. Excuse me. Uh, my camera seems to be tilted down at my breasts. <clears throat> uh, now, without further ado, let's please welcome Jeff Tweedy to the proceedings. Hello. <laughs> uh, so I've read this book and we've communicated because we're uh, in a marriage together that everyone should know is okay with our wives. So it's not, you know, it's not a secret or anything. Um, but I communicated to you uh, that I found your book, especially at this moment when we need some solace and we need some encouragement and inspiration and optimism, uh, an incredible dose of medicine, a, a heaping spoonful of those things. Um, I guess the first question I would ask you is, you know, you're a world traveling, kick-ass rock musician. What is it, given the opportunity <clears throat> to create any of the uh, many things that you can create, why, why this subject matter? Um, well, after I wrote the first book, which was, you know, more of a memoir, there were a lot of pieces of the first book that were about creativity, were about like process and things that I like to think about and like to talk about. And I actually got a, I mean, it was from you and our friend George, who you both kind of encouraged me to expand upon those ideas. I felt like that was the part that resonated with 
my friends that make stuff. Uh, so I started thinking about what a book about creativity would look like. And I came up with the title to kind of focus my mind on where I would start, you know, talking about what I think creativity can do for you and what I think it really is, as opposed to how it gets mythologized and, and made more magical than it needs to be. It already is incredibly magical, but um, I think we do a disservice to a lot of people wanting a way in, a door to into their own creativity to make it appear to be something prohibitive to, I don't know, artistic geniuses, <laughs> for example. Right. Well, um, it's something that I, it's a lesson that I learn over and over again uh, as people keep hiring me to do creative things that I feel like I'm clumsy at. Um, mm -hmm. You and I have actually sat around and played with writing some songs together to my great delight. And, you know, you, you being the Obi-Wan Kenobi of this relationship. <laughs> and um, it's a lesson that I still can't quite wrap my head around. Uh, the, the lesson is appreciating that the when I hear myself sing, for example, basically saying that doesn't sound like the way I wish I sounded. I wish I sang like a superhero, but no, I sound like me. Mm. How, tell me how that should be okay, because I still, I still am not super okay with my singing voice. Um, yeah, I think that, I think a lot of people, I think I still struggle with that. I think everybody struggles with what they sound like. For me, I have a lot more trouble with my speaking voice and doing a book and doing an audio book has, has forced me to confront that more than the singing voice, which I've grown accustomed to or, or made peace with. But I think that the way that you get around that is the same way that you get around it when you're communicating with your loved ones, with your friends. You don't think about it. It's your body. It's your it's what you have to use. And we, we use it especially as an as an actor, you are accustomed to using all of the different aspects of your voice that you have control over to communicate. You aren't just using words, you're using volume, you're using, you know, all of those. I don't know if you focus on the communication part, I think you can make peace a lot faster with uh, what it is that you're actually doing. Uh, we don't all have you know, the most expensive instrument in the world are the most rare set of vocal cords or anything like that. But we, we all pretty much all have some ability to make our feelings known to each other. And, and sometimes a flawed instrument is actually more able to convey some of those things than a pristine instrument. And I, I guess part of that is, is what I'm saying too, is you might need to readjust what you can communicate eff efficiently. You might be suited to saying a specific type of thing that no one else really has access to with their with a perfect voice, their stupid per perfect voice. Yeah, no, I, I agree wholeheartedly. I mean, it's and it's a great example because I communicate uh, by performing words largely, and you hit it right on the head. I don't think about if I'm performing anything but singing, I, I don't think about how it's going to sound. I simply communicate it as effectively as I can. And so, I mean, when 
the few times we've collaborated on songs, it's it's a torturous process because you generously help me with songs of my own. Uh, that's the collaboration. A few of them can be found at the end of one of my audiobooks. And then in my current tour, I have a song that we wrote together called Thank God It's Friday about a <laughs> hardworking hard bumblebee named Billy Bob Bill. <laughs> and the, the horrible part of writing songs with you for me is that you're the, you make the music. So I usually come in with an idea or with words and we kind of collaborate on the words. And then you, the human jukebox, is like, okay, how about this uh, incredibly catchy hit, the trope? And I, and I say, oh, that sounds awesome. Or I'll say, I don't know. And you say, okay, how about these three other choices right off the top <laughs> of, of your head? And it's super impressive. Then you, we decide on it. Then you lay down a, a scratch vocal of like what it should sound like. So then I, so then in my headphones, I have my hero, Jeff Tweedy, singing this song. And the ultimate <laughs> goal is to replace your voice with me, with my donkey's voice. And so it is, I, I appreciate th that's a load I have to bear and, and that I have to become okay with, you know, the wabi-sabi of, appreciating my own voice well to you make you if i can make you feel better <laughs> that uh we shouldn't do that anymore we should you know you should sing the the demo when we when we get it to a place where we're happy with it but i was going to tell you when i was writing songs for mavis i would send her home with a demo version with me singing the song a lot of times and she would come back to the studio the next day and she would be singing like this. She would be <laughs> like, why, yeah, like I'm what I was like, what are you singing? Are you trying to sing like like me? <laughs> and she would uh, she would get it in her head like that too. So I don't think it's I don't think it's necessarily that I'm delivering some definitive version of something. I think it's just a natural inclination when you hear something the first time and you respond to it and you like it, I think that it's, it is a little hard to make it your own, you know? Yeah. And I mean, I, I, I have, as you know, uh, I've been a rabid fan of yours for a very long time before we finally met, you know, just a handful of years ago. And so it's, it's whoever you love to hear singing, which in my case is you, to hear you. And then I think, well, that sounds Great! Like, why can't we just be done? Like, the, uh, <laughs> sounds like sounds like we got it, Jeff. Um, so you know, I have to learn to uh, to get okay with with my own thing. But but that that's something that really comes across in your book that I think is such a valuable life lesson that I continue to learn and I continue to try and impart on others when it comes to creativity. And that is understanding that whatever you have, whatever is yourself is quite sincerely the most incredible and charismatic thing you have. And, mm -hmm. and the uh, conundrum or the counterintuitive part is that that's the thing we know the best. And so usually it's easy to, be, uh, to find displeasure or, or at least not be interested in that. Mm -hmm. So when I started acting, for example, I, I didn't think I was 
I, I didn't think I could just act like myself because I was like, who cares about me? I want to mm-hmm. act like a cool dude. Mm-hmm. So then I tried way too hard and, and I was bad. Yeah, the, the world is really efficient at teaching this lesson that things are supposed to be hard. That when you are so great at something, when you're watching somebody that's so great at it, they've obviously worked hard. And that part is true. But it has also, at the same time, I think taught a lot of people, and I don't say this in my book, but I wish I had, because I think this is a real important factor for a lot of people. People tend to have learned to devalue the things that come naturally, the things that come easiest Mm -hmm. to them. I think I talk about it a little bit in the book, but I've seen that with incredibly, incredibly talented people where they have this thing, they have this voice that just pours out of them. But for some reason, they want to do, you know, something that sounds roughed up or something that's weirder than than what they sound like. Or, uh, you know, you could use a million different examples. It's just wanting to be something different than and valuing more something that they perceive to be harder than the thing that just pours out of them. And um, then, and then there are people like Dolly Parton who nail it. You know, she has this effervescent gift and she actually is aware of it, that her main thing was to discover who she was and then do it on purpose, <laughs> you know, to be that on purpose yeah. um, and a lot, continuously recharge and allow that that personality to be what people enjoy and see and get she shares yeah that i mean she's a great example because uh when you're in it even if you succeed as as dolly parton has if you are dolly parton and you're living in it uh i can only imagine that maybe you have a a couple few hits Mm -hmm. and and you uh you do very well delivering dolly parton to your audience but then at some point, you know, a few years go by, you mature, life goes by, and you think, well, surely I need to change it up. Like, I, you know, maybe mm-hmm. I, I should be a brunette next time or whatever. And, mm-hmm. and being able to maintain over the, the many years that she has that core, that foundational personality and sort of tonal message is so, I think, incredibly harder than it looks. Yeah. And, and I, I think that for her, you know, being, I don't know, one of the all time greats, it might be a little bit easier, you know, because the foundation of just being what she is, is so vast that that it's kind of, in a, you know, you can't exhaust the possibilities of what she's able to present, you know, she's uh, playing banjo, you know, like then you get into the, like the real subtleties of how rich the tradition is she's drawing upon and, and all, I don't know. It's just, it's, uh, she's great, but it's something that I think is accessible to anybody is the core lesson of Dolly Parton to me. And that is she was not, um, it wasn't the easiest thing to sell, I think initially, the idea of, of herself is, I mean, she's taken a lot of slings and arrows for being who she is. And she's also persevered forever and, and continued to be sort of undaunted in presenting this uh, reliably Dolly person that she is. <laughs> no, I, I agree. And, and even, 
having been established across the decades, even just recently she was in the news, like when you deliver a message of empathy or humanity or equality, it's astonishing sometimes. And and I kind of want to ask you about this since we're in a time of of turmoil, you know, we have this pandemic, we have this, uh, I don't know if you've seen the news, but there's a, a guy in the White House who is just like a five, six, seven alarm fire. One side of our government is is ramming a Supreme Court justice through some hearings when they're, they're not paying attention to like taking care of our population in the mm-hmm. pandemic and the needs of, of all the people. Um, so in that sort of period of turmoil, why are you writing a book about creativity? And I mean, don't, isn't this the kind of arts that we should do away with? Mm-hmm. Isn't this superfluous to what we need to be concerned with right now? Um, no, I mean, I know you're not asking that uh, with, with uh, I mean, it's, it's a good question. You can make an argument for a lot of things being frivolous in a time where we're all sort of needed to be engaged and, and staying aware of what we can do to help. There's a lot of suffering. There's a lot of, um, a lot of trouble that uh, people are having with coping in a time like this. And my argument has always been, first of all, I think that to spend time with yourself creating is a really important way to connect yourself to the notion of creativity, I mean, to to creation. Uh, When you make something that wasn't there when you woke up, you are aligning yourself with an idea that is the most exalted thing that you can think of. It's it's a godlike act. And I personally believe that when you engage in those types of acts and you're reminded that you have that power, you're reminded that you have this gift of imagination, this gift to share your imagination with yourself, not just the world, but with even with yourself to participate actively, consciously engage in that side of yourself that is able to make something out of nothing, then you were reminded of your ability to do that outside of yourself, outside of the world. You have the ability to make someone else happy. You have the ability to make someone else suffer less. And, you know, taking care of yourself, for sure. There's some things insular and selfish about uh, all acts of self-care. And I I truly believe that that is, at the very least, you could be looked at as an act of self-care, which is which is okay. I think that's, you know, we aren't going to do anybody much good if we're unable to cope with the world ourselves. So all of those things lead me to believe that it's inherently good. And there, there are people that would have to be pretty cynical to make that argument that it's not. I would go even further to say that, you know, there are things that need to be torn down. And there is, there are acts of destruction that are creative, uh, that are righteous, that are good. We need to rethink things. But you have to be creative and, and smart about being able to assess what those things are. And I think experiencing your own creativity, experiencing your own creations makes you a better judge 
over time of what is needed and what mm -hmm. is important and what is what is mistakenly perceived as creativity, which is just destruction for the sake of destruction. You know, a lot of times it's easy. It feels very powerful. It is godlike also to destroy. It is exalted to tear someone else's thing down, to tear someone else's hope down, to tear someone else's, you know, stupid drawing down or stupid song. Uh, that we open ourselves up to that by making things and putting them out into the world. And you can see how tempting it is for the world to tear those things down. And, and I have to believe that that's just an inverse sort of impulse to the one I'm describing. And I don't think it's very good for the world <laughs> to allow that to go unchecked. I think it consciously needs to be checked. So uh, to answer your question, I just think it's like the best thing that we can do for ourselves. And if we do good things for ourselves, I do ultimately believe we are a part of the world and we will contribute that to the world as well. So it sounds like rather than engaging in practices to make our country great again or to return to a time of glory <laughs> when, when we had achieved a pinnacle of, hum, of human glory, why, like, tell me, why shouldn't we just return to that glory? Uh, it sounds like you're suggesting that we still need to learn and grow and improve ourselves. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, I think what we're witnessing in our culture and maybe on a world stage even is a, a deep sense of primordial fear from people that the, the way the world was, which was primarily great for white men, is disappearing. And that obviously is the world that people are saying, make it great again. That's, I don't know what other world they could be referring to because the world wasn't so fucking great for a lot of people. Right. And, and it is obviously needed to be worked on and repaired and and corrected and made more fair and more inclusive uh it needs to be made kinder i've never understood why people i mean i guess i guess it has to be an overridden by fear of some sort but why wouldn't you want your neighbor to be happier why wouldn't you want your neighbor to feel more secure in the world why wouldn't you want your neighbor to feel more seen and represented by the um, the culture that they live in as well yeah. as you do. So I think when you and I were growing up was maybe the last time period where we still felt like the future was where things would get solved, <laughs> where mm -hmm. the, the things were going to get better. And I remember that slowly leaving me as I got older and I don't think that happened to every generation. I think that a lot of generations continued to believe that for most of their lives. And when people say, if, if, if I take them at their word, at the most pure expression of the idea of make America great again, mm -hmm. I, could, I could maybe get myself to understand it as let's get it to a place where we feel hopeful about the future again. 
Right. But let's just say that. Why don't we just say that? Let's like let's make it. Uh, let's make our way into a, a place where we live up to more of the promises of this amazing, you know, idea of a country, or live up to more of the promises that we all espouse through our religious beliefs. And um, I can't give it all away. I can't let go of it completely because I believe that it, it is achievable through a. I don't know through a lot of compassion and, and awareness. Well, uh, thank you for being candid with me. And I agree with you. I, I maintain a sense of optimism and focus on looking for the work that we can be doing in that direction. And your book, I think, is a wonderful uh, roadmap. It, there, there's, a, you know, there's a wonderfully specific quality to it. And it's funny, think about the way I write songs, they're very specifically a delivery system for like jokes (laughs) and like social commentary. And so a lot of your book I found frustrating because there are these really fun exercises that are like, you know, just let a random train of like Mm -hmm. make ridiculous pairings of words and, Mm -hmm. and, and it is all fun and effective. But my problem is, I would have to not want to have the joke delivery system that my songs are and instead just make, you know, a free-form organic song. And right. maybe that will come to pass one day. But stepping back from songwriting, I think your book is a great guidebook to the path of life, to the sensibility of staying open to all the pieces that are presented to us, whatever that your context might be, that we all are capable of making something beautiful and efficacious with whatever ingredients are in front of us. You make such a lovely point. All of your points land so satisfyingly about taking a a series of phrases, cutting them up and reordering them. And, and it's, it's terribly effective. You, you're able to then say, oh, eight lines of cocaine starts the, the verse, of course, and it lands on you like, like a ton of bricks. Um, I mean, do you, do you feel like your, your idea for this book was specifically as a songwriting coach or teacher, or did you feel the sort of greater wisdom that you're imparting? (laughs) Well, I think that my highest aspiration was to teach someone how to teach themselves how to make a song or to find their own process. And and I could see if you were looking at it like, okay, this is a step-by-step guide, that could be very frustrating, especially since you already have a process that delivers what you want to communicate. You're already doing part of the work for yourself in a way that is is uh, you don't really need a book to to teach you how to do. You've you've found this way into some form of expression that you feel really comfortable with and you enjoy, and you're doing that. I think in my case, where the book might be helpful is if you became stuck. And I think even within those parameters of how you specifically want to communicate and deliver jokes and social commentary, you could take a step back, do one of the exercises or something like that. And it might present something that would even fit in with with that framework, if that's what you're looking, looking for. You're right. You're right. And you're, 
I'm I'm going to try it, <laughs> and and I'm, I'm going to tell you how I did. And and what you've just done is gently made it clear to me that it's okay to try a new system. And you're totally right. Like if I want to write a song about how much Brett Kavanaugh loves beer, for example, mm-hmm. I'll write out a bunch of of sentences uh, and anthemic uh, salutations. And then I'll fuck with them using the Jeff Tweedy methods, and I will I will let you know how I did. <laughs> that sounds great to me. If there's a through way to read the book, like a linear, you know, chronological one page in front of the other way to read the book, it is more along the lines of just a broader pep talk about giving yourself permission to make stuff, to write songs, even if you don't know how to play any instruments, you know, to just to contemplate writing a song, I think is a time is a little bit of time better spent than a lot of things we do. But if you are an aspiring songwriter, I do I think that it could be something where certain sections are almost like a workbook or something where you could kind of come back to them and use them over and over and over again and get different results. Right. Well, I, I love that. This show is brought to you by Patreon, who ask, Creators, are you tired of being paid in clicks and likes? Social media and streaming platforms help people find your work, but getting you paid is another story. With Patreon, you can stop rolling the dice of ad revenue and per-stream payouts and grow your creative career through the direct support of the people who care the most, your fans. Since Patreon is built for creators, not advertisers, You'll skip the middleman and develop a sustainable income source by offering a recurring membership to your fans. In turn, they'll get access to exclusive community, premium content, and the chance to become active participants in the work they love. The creative system is broken. So if you're a podcaster, video maker, musician, writer, illustrator, a creative person of any kind, sign up on patreon.com now. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com and change the way your creativity is valued by building the steady income stream you deserve. I was surprised when when we met because they say don't meet your heroes, and that's true. We both probably have a lot of stories of meeting our heroes and finding them disappointing on one level or another. But I, I was quite taken when when we met and I found you to be such a uh, a curious and self-effacing and kind person, probably because when you adore a rock icon, I'm sorry to use that phrase, but... Oh, it sounds right. Yeah, if the shoe fits, <laughs> uh, if the glitter boot fits, uh, that's that's an intimidating icon, you know, where you're like, oh my God, like I'd be so scared to sit next to Lou Reed uh, mm-hmm. when he was around in a restaurant, just... C- like if I if I cut my chicken fried steak wrong, I would be afraid he might give me a tongue lashing. Um, but I'm I could talk to you all night about this because I love your uh, curiosity and your openness, and you inspire me together with our friend George to remain young and to maintain the attitude of a student, understanding that we're human beings that will never be done improving, Hmm. 
And so let's stay open and talk to each other about these things. And we're going we're gonna to keep talking, but I, I want to sort of open the chat up to some questions from the audience. If, well, if you're, can I respond to that really quickly? You, I'm you, afraid that you've used your time. Okay, uh, I'm sorry. The, now, the senator from Kent, yes, you can, please. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, you, you and George really, really have been instrumental in, in me being able to maintain some of that feeling that you're talking about. I, 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 I love the idea of getting better at things or learning more about what it is that I do. And you and George both both present me consistently with um, a bar to aim for because nobody is really super inclined to rest on what it is that they have become or how they're seen, their status or any accomplishments or work that they've already done. I, I love that we're all sharing with each other our insecurities and our and our desire to like I don't I really want to figure out how to do this this time. <laughs> it's like it's kind of the, the general vibe. Yeah. And it and it's funny one thing I think that we that we share is that when you want to try and figure out how to do something and you fail but you fail well and so that becomes a record. And mm-hmm. it's not what you set out to do. Mm-hmm. So then you you try again and you fail in a different direction. And that's in your book as well. Like each of those failures is a success uh, and has wonderful value. And you may never, you likely will never achieve the thing you set out to do. Whatever it is you dream, I think that's guaranteed. I love the feeling that I get when I finish a record. I almost always have a period of a couple of weeks where I think I've done the best thing I could ever possibly do. I really do. I feel so Uh in love with this thing that I'm driving around in my car listening to. And I know that it's going to fade and I know that it's not going to last all the way to when the record's released. But I hope that I still will continue to make that connection with the songs enough to put them across to people. Um, But I I love that sense that I get. And then I I also am very appreciative of the fact that it goes away and, and I want a new song to sing. You want a new role. You want a new challenge. You know, it's a way to keep moving forward and, and to have something to look forward to. It, it really is. Uh, all right. Well, let me let me throw a few questions at you from the crowd. I don't have who these are from. So a person listening asks, hmm. how has the vulnerability of writing a memoir and now your new book been different from the vulnerability of being on a stage? Uh, I think being on a stage has taught me most of what I know about myself in terms of putting it into a book or I don't know, being self, self-conscious slash self-aware. Um, I don't know. I don't think I'm the most comfortable person on a stage to begin with. So, hmm. um, I think that at some point i I really liked and assumed that there was a persona that's supposed to be emerging as an artist, like a not necessarily full full David Bowie, but that it was okay to kind of have a, a mystique or a person that you became on stage. And I never ever could get myself to be comfortable with that. And so at some point, 
I set out to try and become more myself on stage and not feel that weird, almost an icky feeling of like, that wasn't really me coming off the stage and hanging out with my, my kids. So that experience, I think, made it easier for me to maybe be a little bit more straightforward in writing like the, my memoir in this book, because that's part of it is part of like not really wanting to project any mysticism or persona, even though those things are going to be there. They'll get projected onto you no matter what you do if you stand on a stage with lights on you. Uh, but I feel the same. I feel the same on stage and off. And, and as I've gotten older, that feels so good to me to not feel like I have to change at all in either situation. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think, and I think it really comes across, uh, there, there's a great authenticity in your writing. By the way, like my mom and dad recently read your, your memoir. <laughs> and uh, one thing that I love uh, that I've experienced as well is you're you're really a funny writer. Uh, the first time I read your your first book, I was angered for a short time <laughs> because you know when people rack up the talents, you're like, okay, come on. <laughs> but you've got really good jokes in there. Okay, go moving to the next question, uh, Jeff. Do you know right away if a song is worth finishing? Have you ever worked at something mediocre and have it turn out amazing? Uh, yeah, that's actually something that's, uh, I think it's probably way more common than people would, would think. Uh, I talk about it a lot in the book. I think that not necessarily what song needs to be, you know, am I going to work on this thing thinking it's mediocre? I don't necessarily do that, but I'm, I might work on something that I made a voice memo of like months ago and I'll just get it out in the studio and say, well, let me see what I can do with this. And for a long time, I be, might be thinking, I wonder why I recorded this. I don't really quite get what sounded so promising to me to, that I got out my phone and recorded it. And over time, it it almost always unlocks something unfolds in a way that I didn't expect. And I never look at it as wasted time. I have hard drives full of recording that I've done that has led me to the next song that I really loved. For me, a lot of that's a lot of the way I've learned how chords work and and how music works is by forcing myself to pursue something until I understand it musically even. So yeah, I, I, I highly recommend uh, working through stuff that you are suspicious of. <laughs> if that's all you have, if you have something that's sitting there that's super inspiring and you know you love it, and I, I mean, that can be its own daunting challenge because sometimes you don't want to touch it because you don't want to break it. You don't want to like fall short and taint it with a failure to get to its potential. But, um, but I think you should do both. I agree. Um, in the wood shop, when you're trying to make something beautiful, you actually plan as part of the process, at least I do, to make mistakes a few times. Like you buy extra wood mm-hmm. to, to screw it up. You're like, okay, I got three tries. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully I'll, I'll work out the kinks. So the fourth try is the, is the mahogany and I'll get it right. And so I depend on the mediocrity, I, you know, just like it, with anything so that eventually you can achieve greatness. 
yeah, I think in the book I said you have to sound bad to sound good or, you know, it's a forgotten part of it. I think almost everybody that you've ever listened to has allowed themselves to sound really, every song that you probably ever loved did not sound that way when it was beginning. Yeah, you you have to make a racket. (laughs) This next question is also addressed in the book, uh, and I love what you say about it. Jeff, I'm a single working mom of two. Do you have any advice on how to connect to that space within when you're exhausted? How can you access in stolen moments? I, I think for, for people in a situation like that, there's there are some really, really good exercises. The main trick is to get yourself to ask something reasonable of what it is that you're doing. You know, if you think I only have 10 minutes, I'm not going to write uh, Rhapsody in Blue in 10 minutes. You're right. You're, you're not. That's not going to happen. But if you say I have 10 minutes, I wonder if I can come up with a song that I could repeat or that I could sing again or I could whistle again or that I could listen to again or that could maybe grow into more of a song someday. You absolutely can do that. You absolutely can make a achievable goal for yourself out of out of a very short period of time. In, in reality, uh, a song, depending on how long the song is, that's how long you need to have to make it. I mean, people improvise m- music all the time. Um, it's, it's sort of one of the main things that the book is trying to allow you to find ways to trick yourself into, into just opening up and letting something come out and not putting all of the artificial weight on it that we tend to put on ourselves to make something great. Yeah, you, you make a great point that it, it's a, it's a, it's a, a great uh, key to procrastination any of those elements that you're like, mm, I don't have time. There's like, mm-hmm. it's so easy to say things are not ideal. The mm-hmm. conditions are not ideal, but you're totally right. If you just, you may try to write one line of a song, and you may end up with a great idea for some groceries you need to get. Like, <laughs> yeah, just tapping into that creative part of your thinking. Mm-hmm. I, I, that's what I tell people a lot around again around making things with your hands is it affects the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. It's, it opens you up to a part of your problem-solving skill set that's invaluable. Right. It's really related to the question or the, the notion of, uh, of writer's block. Writer's mm-hmm. block isn't like something got turned off. In reality, it's just a judgment. Most people that I know that experience writer's block, what they're really saying is that they don't like the things that they're making. Mm. They've made a judgment that the things that are coming to them aren't worthy. And and that can happen, I guess. Like, you know, that can be frustrating to get through. But I think that's what you have to remind yourself is happening. And it kind of evaporates. It, for me, it tends to lose a lot of its weight when I realize that it's just me thinking that I suck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or, you know, like these... No, it's just, it's pretty much the same as all the other things that I thought I liked. It's just, um, it's just right now I'm, I'm asking too much of what it is that I'm actually doing. And what it is that I'm actually doing is just spending some time with myself, coming up with a chord progression and, and 
just allowing something to happen. I love it. All right, we're going to make this the last question, sort of. Uh, would you say that getting inspiration slash writing a song is easier or roughly the same as it was when you were younger? Um, oh, I think it's way, way easier for me now because I have, I have, I have way more energy for it. I certainly had a lot of drive and energy for it when I was younger, but I wasn't able to harness a lot of discipline and work ethic around what it is I really wanted to accomplish or, you know, I, I didn't know how to make my songs better. I could just get to a song. And, and to me, those are things that make me more excited about making another song is that I've learned all these other tricks uh, maybe that'll be my next book, how to make one song better. <laughs> yeah. Because because there's a whole different topic to me in a, in a lot of ways. You know, a lot of people stop. I think a lot of people stop just short of something that is complete. That's one thing working with you, I think you're really good at that I made a mental note of is like, you write way more than you need and write way more verses than you need for the songs that we worked on. And you don't just settle for them. I mean, it's probably from writing as an actor and thinking about delivering lines and having them be economical and, and have all of the things become clear without wasting any lines and words and stuff like that. You're, you're very focused on that. And a lot of, I think a lot of songwriters stop very, very short of, of getting to that place where something becomes crystallized and clear. But yeah, I think I have this, I have, the, I have the same energy, but I think with way more confidence and, and work ethic. Well, and it, it stands to reason. I mean, you have, you know, pursued a mastery of that art form across your life. It only stands to reason that you you will continue to become the LeBron James of <laughs> of doing things with a six string guitar, and um, and there, there's a final bonus question that someone is asking of me, which is, do we have a book on writing books to look forward to from me? And my answer uh, is absolutely not, because <laughs> I am not spending my life pursuing the mastery of writing books. <laughs> In fact, I'm, it's all I can do to get a book done by the seat of my pants, <laughs> which uh, gives me the opportunity to, I, I think it'd be nice for the two of us to give a shout out to the incredible woman who edits both of our books. Yes, that's correct. The astonishing Jill Schwartzman. Uh, she's edited all of my books and both of yours. Both of mine, yeah. I would say that I I don't remember writing either one of my books, so it's entirely possible that she wrote them uh, because I feel like she willed them into being. I couldn't agree more, <laughs> and and she's the reason I won't write a book on writing books because I secretly suspect Jill of having written my books. <laughs> right. I know I wrote them. I know I wrote them, but I don't remember writing them because she's so good at making that process, um, you know, sort of similar to the, some of the things in my book about writing songs is like mm -hmm. is uh, I, I probably learned from Jill in some ways, you know, because um, 
it's it is a manageable goal that you aim for each day and yeah and that's that's over time accumulates into something that you had no idea you could do well thank you uh to jill from both of us and uh absolutely i um i would love to get into all kinds of more trouble with you but for now because there's only so much bandwidth in the world um <laughs> I'm going to, I'm just going to say thank you for letting me share this time with you. Always so much fun, Nick. Thank you so much. My pleasure. C- congrats on uh, creating another beautiful bouquet for the world to <laughs> admire. And I think uh, you're going to stick around maybe and, and noodle on that guitar a little bit. I think I'm going to play a couple of songs uh, from, from the record that I wrote while I was writing this book. I love it. Well, I happen to know that record and highly recommend it. So thank you all. Uh, If anybody stuck around this long, Jeff, I'll see you uh, in bed (laughs) as part of our marriage. I'll sing the song I wrote for you. Please please and thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Bye. Bye. Tomatoes right off of the vine We used to eat them like that all the time And if you think that's the best thing I ever knew Guess again, my love is you Oh, I'm high, but the 
think I have time to do one more. <laughs> Thank you. All right, I'm going to play uh, play a robin or a wren. At the last, last call When it's time for us all to say goodbye I know I'm gonna cry I know I'm gonna cry Because all in all I'm just having a ball Being alive And I don't wanna die I don't wanna die At the end of the end of this beautiful dream we're in I'll wake up again A robin or a wren And then I'll sit Outside your window I'll sing a song You'll recognize And you won't know why fall into the corner of the smile on your face and I'll be alive I'll be alive I'll be alive I'll be alive I'll be alive, I'll be alive. Well, thank you, everybody. Hope you enjoyed tonight. I certainly did. I'm not sure if I'm the one that's supposed to turn everything off here and turn off the lights. So I'm assuming I just turn my computer off and say goodbye to everybody. <laughs> Thank you. Take care, everybody. Take care of each other. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jeff Tweedy, Nick Offerman, and our co-presenters, The Hideout and Seminary Co-op Bookstore. From The Hideout, I want to give huge love to Tim and Katie Tutton. You guys fucking rule. The best. And of course, go back, listen to the, the previous Jeff Tweedy episodes we've done with Nora Jones and Abby Jacobson. You can find TalkHouse on all your favorite social platforms, including Instagram, Facebook, uh, Twitter, all at TalkHouse. The researcher for today's episode was Reese Higgins. Jeff was recorded in Chicago by Mark Greenberg and Nick recorded himself. Good job, guys. For the very last time, I get to say our producer was Mark Yoshizumi. 
The Talkhouse podcast theme music was composed and performed by The Range. Listeners, thank you so much for an incredible six-year, over 300-episode run. I wish that I could share with you all of the joy that this has brought for me. And hopefully down the road, I'll come back on to say a quick hello. But in the meantime, you can follow everything I'm working on at Elia Einhorn on Twitter and Instagram. And make sure to subscribe to The Talk House because this new series that's coming, I'm telling you, it is something beautiful, almost as beautiful as you. This is Elia Einhorn signing off for the very last time, but leaving you in the eminently capable hands of Josh Modell and Nick Dawson. I will be listening each and every week. You better, buddy. Thanks, Elia. Thanks, dudes. Okay, let's do it. One, two, three. Peace. Peace. And Elia. <laughs> Big love to new beginnings. <laughs>